When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Manchester's indie rock and roll station. Excess Manchester. The Excess Manchester Long Player. An iconic album in full with Jim Salverson. Excess Manchester. You're right. It's been a while, hasn't it? But the Excess Long Player is back. Not as regular, but still delving deep into some classic indie albums and having a good old natter with some of the people who made those albums. Producers, label bosses and tonight, front men. Because I'm speaking to Stephen Jones from Baby Bird about their classic 1996 album, Ugly Beautiful. I recorded this interview with Stephen when he was about to head out on tour, which you'll hear us talk about to celebrate 25 years, amazingly, since the release of this album. We talk about what it was like looking back through the years, his huge, unbelievable body of work. I don't think there can be an artist that has released more albums than Stephen. And his relationship with what is undoubtedly Baby Bird's best-known song, You're Gorgeous. All that's come on today's Excess Long Player. And if this is your first time, the first podcast you've listened to, have a look back through all the other shows because there's plenty of brilliant interviews with some amazing people in music. So find your favourite album, get stuck in. But this episode is all about Baby Bird and Ugly Beautiful. How you doing, Stephen? Uh, yeah, I'm doing well, thank you. Nice to talk to you. Nice to talk to you. 25 years since this album was released. Did you know that was, was it a fact that was circled on your calendar? Did you know it was coming up or uh, no, was it a I, reminder? I have, no, I don't have a countdown app or anything like that. Well, at least I don't find it horrifying. I think it's um, just amazing that I'm still doing stuff. So uh, that's not bad for a career. Someone shared with me the other day, because I'm a child of the 90s that was the music genre that i mostly identified with and someone said that we're further away now in 2022 from 1990 than we were from england winning the world cup in 1966 in 1990 which kind of puts it in perspective how long ago it was i think that as well like um how old i am now from uh, that it wasn't many years after the end of the Second World War that I was born, so that's in, that, that's quite horrifying. Well, music doesn't age. Let's remember that, and let's focus on this album, "Ugly Beautiful," a classic album from the Britpop era. Now, I was looking at this and thinking this could have been a solo record because it was written by you. In some cases, all the instruments were played by you. You had a hand in production, I think. So what was it that made it a baby bird record rather than it being Stephen Jones? Yeah, the the history of it is that before this album came out, which was the first band album, even though there's tracks on there that I've played everything on, 
I had five lo-fi albums out, which we, the plan was, the first one was I Was Born a Man and it was going to end with Dying Happy. So there were five albums they were going to be released over a nine-month period, like a pregnancy. Mm. And it, it got loads of attention in The Enemy and I don't know if you remember, The Enemy and Sounds and, and Melody Maker. And they had little um, top 10 charts and it went to the top of that. And we just got interest from that. And then this album was came out of out of those. It's probably about 400 songs I had because I'd, I'd been on the doll a long time. So I'd written a lot of songs. And they became mm-hmm. those, lo- those five lo-fi albums. Some of those were taken and reworked for this album, plus some other demos that never weren't on those, if that makes sense. Convoluted answer, but there you go. So why Baby Bird rather than Stephen Jones, though? Why was it Let's Build a band around me was that part of yeah, the kind I, of like I fitting it, in with the Britpop scene yeah well the the lo-fi stuff was was always under baby bird so okay. that was always my name just because I wanted it to be a very very uh, something that embodied something very simple and very kind of like naive and that's what those early demos they were more made on four track recorders so um it was very simple stuff so so it was just the obvious thing because that's what people knew me by you know they, they, they knew the name baby bird so it was putting a band around these these songs and then Ugly Beautiful comes out on a, on a record label. 400 songs whittled down to 15. That's, I mean, yeah. you're a prolific songwriter, more which we'll talk about a little bit later. But how did you make the cut? How did you make the decision of what 15 tunes from your back catalogue were going to make this album? I think it was just sitting in a pub with uh, Luke Scott, our guitarist, and Rob, who's our drummer, and just drinking 7%. <laughs> <laughs> very thick I remember it being really thick and brown lager or something but anyway no just sitting around and thinking on, on the songs that they they liked really because I'm, I'm very easily persuadable I mean I, I, I like to control the way things are recorded but in terms of songs as long as I, you know I do like them it was it was very much a three-way a three-way thing so you wrote a lot of this music whilst you were on the dole and unemployed and then you were picked up by a major they were backing this album and it did exceptionally well as well top 10 with the album or you're gorgeous which is obviously the song that you are probably best known for went to number three in the charts hung around for 25 weeks or something ridiculous like that as well did it feel like a bit of a whirlwind at the time kind of that gear change Oh, no, totally. I, I don't think I ever got used to it, really. I'm kind of like back to where I've started now, releasing stuff on Bandcamp, you know, demos. So I, I'm quite happy mm. where I am now. Yeah, it's, it's not it's not up to you. You're, you're suddenly told what you have to do, where you have to be, which TV show you need to be on. And it's just very, very regimented. And that was, you know, I started in the business quite late on, not, not as a as 16, 17-year-old. So I think it was all a bit of a, of a shock. I just remember sitting. We were in a we were in a house uh, that Jimi Hendrix used to use when he when he came to London, and we were all sat around his table waiting to see what position Gorgeous would be. Mm. And I think that's the only the only clear memory I have because I I hadn't been drinking <laughs> or anything, <laughs> and I just remember being told it was number three, and that was that was probably the the moment where it was the peak. Did you enjoy being part of that? Britpop scene because you were very much part of that you're on tv and top of the pops I'm sure you were doing the cokefield supermodel filled parties at the time (laughs) did you feel like you belonged no not really I don't think but I don't think we were ever Britpop I think we were at the same time but I think because we had a a big single and it's been regarded in a very pop way even though you Mm. read the lyrics it's not classic pop music at all but I think that suddenly pushed us aside of Britpop and um, it just just made it very difficult to carry on after that really because it was such a big song it's very hard to recover your dignity after such a huge (laughs) thing you know it's a Marmite song people love it people people don't so you've got to get beyond that 
like I said, we will talk about that very shortly, but I want to talk about your influence in, in general beforehand because you cited, or I've heard you cite Joy Division as an influence yeah. previously, which when I read in an interview, I was kind of like, oh, do I hear that? Don't I hear that? But I went back and listened to the album and 100%, there was a few touch points in there for me that kind of compare your stuff, particularly on this album with Joy Division. I think it's the juxtaposition of the dark subjects and the pop melodies sometimes. Maybe yeah. your vocals are a little bit crooning occasionally, yeah. which yeah. Ian Curtis obviously famously took his crooning style from some Frank Sinatra records that Tony yeah, Wilson gave him back in the day. So, I mean, what do you think are the main influences of Joy Division's work in what you do? Well, I, I don't, I, I can't, I mean, it's good that you pointed it out. I, I find that very hard to, to judge it, really. I, okay. I've never grown up playing a guitar or playing other people's songs, you know, on acoustic guitar. So I, I think hopefully, Baby Bird, whether you like them or not, it's very hard to compare it. But the odd thing, like you're saying about Ian Curtis or even Ian McCulloch or people that I was, when I was 17, was obsessed by kind of Bunny Man and, and Joy Division. But I think the Joy Division thing is, is melodic bass. And Peter Hook's bass was just mm. totally unique and drove a lot of the songs, I think. And Barney's guitar was sort of on, on top. And I, I think that's, that's, and when I was in bands before Baby Bird, that's what we would do. I would play the bass and try and play it like a guitar so it was melodic. And I think that's the connection. I'm going to ask you to pick a couple of songs off this album in a moment that you really like, maybe your favourite songs. But we do need to talk about Your Gorgeous before we do that, which is yeah, the song you're most famous for. Yeah. What's your relationship like with this record? Do you love it because of what it did and the doors it opened? Or do you resent it because of maybe the attention it gets beyond your other work, your other huge volume of work? <laughs> I think at the time, yes, it's always going to be your gorgeous. People will say, Baby Bird, no, I can't remember them, but your gorgeous is a door opener for a conversation, mm. <laughs> especially with my my little boys at school. It's like, this, oh, he's got that one song, hasn't he? And it, it, but it, it lets him show off about that at least. It's 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 fine, and we we always ask when we doing when we doing our small tours, we ask you, did you want us to play the obvious? And they'll either say <laughs> no, actually, or they'll say oh, really? yes. But very often they're there to hear the other stuff. But my relationship's fine now. I know I realise that I'm doing. I've, I've the career twenty five years is is happening because of that song because it pays the yeah. bills for one, and it's still played on the radio. You know, I get alerts from fans saying, "Oh, you're on Homes Under the Hammer." <laughs> and, uh, so it's it's always there, and it's one of those. I think it's a bit timeless, really. I think we were very careful with the, the instruments we used to make it not, you know, not to use an 80s synth or something that, mm. that automatically dates it. So, so hopefully it's avoided that. It's a song that's got a certain humour to it, I think. Not to say it's funny per se, but it's got a dark oh, humour totally, yeah. to it. And one review I found from the time said it was filling the gap between Bono and Vic Reeves, which I imagine <laughs> is a, a pretty big gap. Did you feel, yeah. though, that that perception of the tune, maybe from its humour, but also from its kind of pop sensibilities, do you think that potentially held you back from being considered a serious artist? At the yeah, time? absolutely. I think a lot of comedians from, you know, I've done stuff with Dom Jolly and Bob Mortimer and, you know, even Vic Reeves, they, they, they had songs on, on their big night out and stuff. Mm. So they've always liked it because of that reason. But I, I think with, with You're Gorgeous, the, it's there's humour in there but it's like David Lynch's films if you're going to put something across which is sinister or a bit nasty or has got something barbed in there then you need to do that with dark humour or it just becomes shocking so I think that's why I like your gorgeous and I'll always think you know it got into the charts with you look at the, the verses I mean it's it's not your normal standard pop fodder at all it's actually quite attacking and a, a little bit nasty 
<laughs> I mean, it's a weird juxtaposition, isn't it? Because you're right, it feels like a pop song. It sounds like a pop song, but it's got these yeah. dark lyrics to it. And I've even heard it weirdly played at people's weddings before, which oh, totally, is yeah. very strange. Do you think, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I guess that's proof that not everyone gets the narrative of the song. So does yeah. that bother you or are you of the mind that... No, no, not at all. I think everyone has to, I, I get those wedding things where when you come, really bring an acoustic guitar for 50 quid and come and play it. <laughs> Uh, obviously not, but um, it's it's. A, if you think of pointing songs, you're on stage and you kind of you, because you're gorgeous and you're pointing at someone in the audience. That's an offensive thing to do because it's mm. a sarcastic song about being gorgeous and trying to flip the tables around. I think I've had people send me just the verses, or or I've met them after gigs and they they recite the verses just to kind of make a point, which is an odd thing to do, but they they have done that. So and I, I would uh, people can interpret it any way they like and mm. it really doesn't bother me if they think it's cool. You know, pop music is choruses, so that you don't always listen to the lyrics. The other song I wanted to highlight off the album as one of my picks is "Too Handsome to Be Homeless," which I'm pretty sure yeah. is the only song ever to quote Michael Portillo. Um, and there are a few yeah. tracks in this album. Corner Shop as well, I think, has got a bit of social commentary to it. Yeah, totally. When you when you were making this album, were you keen to make a statement? with your music or was it just that you were picking inspiration from the world around you at the time and that happened to be what you saw? Yeah, both, both of that. I think I, I don't want to write an I love you, you love me song ever. Mm. Um, it always has to have another strand to it. No, that sounds pretentious, but I mean, I just, I'm just not interested in doing that really. I used to do a lot, well, for 10 years before Baby Bird, I was doing performance art and theatre. So a lot of that was pol political with a small P, not, not political like Labour Conservative, but it was always, I've always wanted to get a point across, you know, to, to my detriment as well, really. But the song has to work as a song you can sing to. It can't just be a shock thing, you know. It has to, it has to have the, the both elements that go together so it can be like a lullaby, but there's also words that you kind of swallow and go, did he just say that? Pick a couple of songs off this album that you really like, Stephen, when you revisited it for this upcoming tour. Yeah. What really stood out to you? Well, we, we always do Good Night, and that was the kind of joke a little bit because we've started the album with Good Night. But that was where it all started with um, Mark Radcliffe and Lard and Mark Lamar. And we used to go in and do little sessions in his studio. And Mark actually lives around the corner from me, and I've, I haven't bumped into him yet. I know he's recovering from, from cancer, but he, he was the one that started. And we just had such a laugh in his studio, and it was just probably adding up to the, the idea that Baby Bird are a comedy more than music, because <laughs> it, it kind of always it always strayed into that. Good, good Night was the starting point, and that's that's why it's at the beginning and also a bit of a joke, because it should come at the end if it's Good Night. And the other one, uh, I'm just looking at the back of it now, oh, Tomic Soda, because that, that wasn't a band one. Good Night was played by the band, but Atomic Soda was just a, a demo that I, I don't understand why it didn't make it onto those first five lo-fi albums. Hmm. So it was one of those ones that was sort of discovered that we'd forgotten about. And it, it just sounds it, it just sounds very, very different. And it's got like a huge kind of um, bell sort of sound on it. And I, I just like, really like it. In your head, is there a separation between the stuff that you describe as band tunes and the stuff that you is your lo-fi solo stuff from the early days? Oh no, totally. I, I think the, the 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 one downside with this album is that it was had to be put together very very fast. So we had the singles "Good Night Candy Girl," "Corner Shop," uh, and then things like "Bad Shave," and I think yeah, and "Atomic Soda" and "You and Me." They they were kind of found very very late. It's quite a long album. It's sort of eighteen tracks or something. And there's a track called "King Bing," which is on the um, the special edition, which is a nine minute sort of rant thing. So. Mm. 
I think it was probably we should have thought, right, let's make a, a 10, 11, 12 track album and, and cut it down a bit. But, you know, it, it works if you're prepared to listen to a whole album, which I'm, I know people aren't these days. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're talking about the four albums you released before this. You have released a ridiculous amount of music. I totted up on Wikipedia, 24 albums listed there. But I think it's probably closer to around 100 albums you've released, some self-recorded, some self-released, some put out on Bandcamp all since 1995 so you're clearly a man who is excited by making new music and a man who wants to look forward in terms of music as well so with that in mind how does it feel peering back 25 years to this album ugly beautiful do you do it reluctantly or are you fine with looking back to the past well it's it's we've always done stuff off this album anyway so it's not that new but it's okay. um we will add we will add tracks which uh if we can play them <laughs> we have to rehearse them for but um yeah, yeah. So, so I'm. I'm. It's quite funny because I. I don't think I've played Ugly Beautiful. You know, in, in nineteen ninety six or seven, I probably played it, but I, I haven't played it. You know, until I knew I was doing this interview, um, <laughs> because it, it's it's kind of it's yeah. I'm just always moving on. I don't I don't ever listen to. It's like like actors saying they don't like to look at their films. You know, it's a bit like that really. I I like listening to my stuff, but if I can be doing new stuff, that'll be my my emphasis. How does the album stand up to you now? coming back to it 25 years on do you think it sounds like it's of the time does it sound like it's mid 90s or do you think it could be as relevant i mean i guess you talk about it being kind of slightly political and tackling issues a lot of the issues you're tackling are still relevant as today as they were back then so from that point of view yeah. it works but how about in terms of sonically well that yeah that's scary what you just said there yeah, especially homeless you know it's still a nothing's changed in that department so sonically, yeah, no, it's interesting because it was done with a guy called Steve Power who did Robbie Williams and um, Bon Jovi, I think it's a very strange mix. But it was our first experience of a producer. And I, I was always told, it's always been one of these things in my head, like my dad saying to me, you need to get a proper job, which which is always in my head when I'm lying, if I'm having a lie in, I should get up and get a proper job, not music. And he, he was a bit, it, it, it was interesting. And also the, you're always told you need a producer. Name me a, an album, a classic album that doesn't have a great producer. And I know that's kind of true, but... I also think that you can do that. You can do that yourself, and you don't need a producer. So I get very confused anyway. Whether my, my my ears are pretty rubbish anyway, so I probably <laughs> need a producer. And people would tell me that. So, but it's it's it was an experience with a producer, and he, he we had to fit into that. And that was my first experience of someone being in charge that wasn't me. So, which I took well. I think <laughs> I dealt with it okay. I'm sure the band would say I was an ass, but who knows. <laughs> Stephen, I really enjoyed rediscovering this album, Ugly Beautiful. It was It's a stunning album right the way through. There's some real oh, gems you. of music on there as well. I'm sure everyone at the Deaf Institute on the 24th of February are going to enjoy rediscovering it as well. Normally I finish off these interviews by asking about new music, but it seems that you're always working on new music and you've always got stuff in the pipeline. So yeah. what is next for you? Do you have kind of big picture ambitions or is it just you want to carry on making music and enjoying what you're doing? I think I've just been really lucky because obviously Gorgeous financially has kept me going. And um, also, well, name drop. I did two albums in LA with Johnny Depp and his producer friend, Bruce. So they, things have always, I'm only name dropping that because things always come along at the right time mm -hmm. to take the pressure off me doing interviews and talking about Gorgeous. So I got to talk about that for a couple of years and that, that well, five years, actually, I think we did that. And he made a video and fantastic. So those are the things that keep me going. I think yeah. I'm really quite lazy. I just work in bursts. 
but it's when things come along and, and at the moment the, the new thing is there's a guy who's doing wants to put some of my stuff out on a eco-friendly vinyl which I was quite shocked to hear a lot of people throw their vinyl away. I thought they'd end up in Oxfam shops or they'd yeah. keep them in, in the garages, but a lot of it goes to landfill. So he's doing this thing which will be recyclable and it's all different colours. Mine's going to be white, but there's a series of four artists and he's doing that. So these things come along is all I'm trying to get to. And mm. those are the things that spur me, spur me on and, and mean that I can carry on. You know, I've got to provide for my family as well. So yeah. I need to, all these things are, are there. Stephen, great to talk to you. Good luck with the Lovely. tour. Thank you. The Excess Manchester Long Player, an iconic album in full with Jim Salverson. Excess Manchester. Nice one for listening. Cheers to your ears. Thanks for your time on today's Excess Manchester Long Player. Appreciate you listening to this show and what a nice bloke Stephen was. I do remember he was talking about working with Johnny Depp in that interview. I do remember I was working at a radio station at the time when he was making that album with Johnny Depp. And I can't quite remember the story, but somehow he came into our studio to record a session with Johnny Depp's musicians, so with his band, and they were a few of the coolest people and nicest people think i've ever met anyway that is it for today's podcast do check out the other episodes in this series we talk about to pick a few albums off the top of my head ocean color scene mostly shoals oasis definitely maybe liam frost show me how the spectres dance which might not be an album you're instantly familiar with but it's one of my favorite interviews because it's an album i absolutely love so have a look at the list of albums we've covered find your favorite albums and get stuck in and i will be back soon with another excess long player the Excess Manchester Long Player, an iconic album in full with Jim Salverson. Excess Manchester.